Hey, Elizabeth. So I have to ask, in Pride of the X-Men, why the hell does Wolverine have an Australian accent? I know, right? Well, it could be for a few different reasons. The simplest explanation is that the same guy voice acted Wolverine years before in Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, and he had an Australian accent back then, too. At least, according to IMDb, the rest of the internet thinks it's some other guy. Oh, right. I remember that episode, uh, Firestar's origin episode. I'd forgotten about that. What else? It might also have come from confusion about the script. In an early draft, Wolverine calls Pyro a dingo, which makes sense since Pyro's actually supposed to be Australian. Well, how's that confusing? Well, as the script was revised, someone changed the line so Wolverine was saying it to Toad instead. So I guess whoever was in charge of casting figured that that must mean that Wolverine was the Australian one. <laughs> wow. They should have hired me and Jay to check their work. I mean, we were like seven back then, so maybe not. I don't think that's what really happened, though. Uh, really? Why? According to the show's voice director, the studio forced him to make Wolverine Australian, partially because Claremont was supposedly going to reveal that Logan actually was Australian. That, that makes no sense. And partially to make him more like Mad Max and Crocodile Dundee. What? No place to hide. No place to run. No place to run. The mutant I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Elizabeth Alley, subbing in for J. Rachel Edidin. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 94 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So, Elizabeth, welcome back. I think the last time you were here was episode 47, the X-Men Alpha Flight one, right? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you again for uh, joining me. So yeah, Jay is uh, still out of town right now. They'll be back next episode. But for now, it is the two of us, and we are going to talk about Pride of the Freaking X-Men. <laughs> I want to thank you for inviting me back, but especially thank you for inviting me back to talk about this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I have been looking forward to doing this one for ages. This was always going to be like, all right, now I don't want Jay to go out of town, but like if they do, I know exactly what I'm going to cover. <laughs> so yeah, Pride of the X-Men. I guess we should talk a little bit about just what that is. Exactly. So it was a pilot made in 1989 for the X-Men cartoon series that never went anywhere. And before we did our research, we did not know why. We looked around a little with some help from Dr. Internet, our constant research assistant. And yeah, so apparently where this came from is that they took the budget away from an episode of RoboCop, the animated series. They like did one fewer episode of that show in order to make this pilot. And like you were saying, Elizabeth, it was going to become a full series to join the, I don't want to call it like a Marvel animated universe because there was no continuity, but um, like they had, what was it? Fantastic Four, Spider-Woman, Spider-Man, Spider-Man is Amazing Friends, the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, and the Spider-Man one, for the record, is the one that all the memes come from online, like with him sitting at the desk <laughs> and, you know, how do I shot web and all that stuff. I actually had to look up the Spider-Woman series because I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know there was one. Like, you never think of her as a really prominent character. Yeah, I have vague memories of it, but I would have to dive deep into YouTube to find it. Yeah, what I did find is that at one point, Jessica Drew goes back in time to fight Viking ghosts, and I have nothing bad to say about that. Wow. That Seriously. was clearly supposed to be a very special, like, Thor crossover episode. Oh, man. That's a missed <laughs> opportunity if Thor wasn't there. Of course, sometimes you can put Thor into things. Did you ever see the Daredevil Incredible Hulk live-action movie that had Thor? Or then the second one had Thor in it? I don't remember it having Thor. Yeah, they did I, one with Daredevil, then one with Thor. I remember the Daredevil one. I must have somehow missed the one with Thor. Did it have Frog Thor in it? Because uh, that would be super awesome. No, it just sort of had a beefy guy with like a fur jacket and a hammer. It was uh Was not... it Vincent D'Onofrio? <sighs> if only. 
But we digress, as we so often do. So Pride of the X-Men never made it to series, and that wasn't because of any, like, quality problems. I mean, the show is fine. It's okay. That's what surprised me the most. It'd been so long since I watched it. I just assumed it never became a series because it was terrible. But actually, it's quite good. It's on par with, you know, your G.I. Joe cartoons of the day. Mm Mm-hmm. But apparently Marvel was having some financial troubles at the time, so they actually stopped doing all of the cartoons they were associated with, except for Muppet Babies, which apparently Marvel was associated with. That is so weird. Yes. So where X-Men fall, the Muppet Babies stand. It's like a, you know, <laughs> a Autobot Decepticon, one shall rise and one shall fall kind of thing. Exactly. I think that's the first time Optimus Prime has ever been compared to Pride of the X-Men, but <laughs> I'm going to go with it. Is Skeeter the Kitty Pride character? Uh, yeah, but then where does that put Scooter? Oh, man, no. Ileana. He's Ileana. No. Okay. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Okay. Which means the Muppet Babies had a lot more subtext than I ever thought. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so, yeah, let's go ahead and go through Pride of the X-Men and talk about what happens. Now, I want to preface this by saying, for anybody who's listening to this, if this sounds like something that would be entertaining, it's on YouTube. I mean, I don't know if it's legal or not, but it's totally on YouTube. So you should go watch it. You could find worse ways to spend 22 minutes of your life. Absolutely. Yeah, so where do we start in Pride of the X-Men? So it starts with an opening narration from Stan Lee that is super, like, racist. It's like, look around. Look at all the people around you. It could be a mutant. Oh, no. Like, he's inciting mutant, you know, segregation or whatnot. Seriously. Uh, Of course, he's doing it in his, you know, Stan Lee huckster voice. Yes. As one must. Back in the day, Stan Lee used to introduce, like, every Marvel cartoon, and I gotta say, Stan Lee's not my favorite figure in comics history, but I kind of miss that, because goddamn, that dude could sell anything, he said. Absolutely. Plus, it did give some continuity and, like, brand awareness to mm-hmm. all those, you know, it was, it, was, it was comforting. It was like Grandpa Stan Lee coming to tell you a story. <laughs> exactly. Oh, <laughs> random side note, as we continue to digress all the time, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, it went for a few seasons, and originally the first season didn't have the Stan Lee opening narration. They inserted yeah. it in later when it was in syndication. Really? So yeah, if you watched it when it was coming out the first time, it wasn't there. I bet old Stan renegotiated quite the pay hike for that. Uh, probably true. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we have Stan Lee, you know, doing his sort of setup of the mutant premise, which, you mm-hmm. know, I, I get it. But then we do have a dude being super racist because we open with a military convoy. I think you were saying it looked like something straight out of G.I. Joe. Exactly. That's what made me think. I was like, oh, this looks just like G.I. Joe. Oh, yeah. But Magneto is being held in some force field thing, just, you know, standard military technology from the late 80s. Yeah, yeah. Um, And there's this evil general guy who says the first line of the show, which is, mutants, I hate them. I love how direct that is. Yeah, he does not care. First of all, he's smoking a cigar in a military convoy with a very dangerous mutant on board. But also he's like, he doesn't deserve to live on the same planet as us. It's like, oh, clearly they had to add the on the same planet uh-huh. so he wasn't actually wishing death, you know, upon the mutants. Yeah, broadcast standards and practices. <laughs> and so, obviously, Magneto doesn't take long to break out, but not before, like, doing some kick-ass supervillain voice dialogue. Like, when he does break out, the soldiers ask him what he's doing, and he just replies, swatting a gnat. Exactly. Every Magneto line is solid gold here, and I wish I had, like, a script or had taken more detailed notes because they're all wonderful and I just want to say them all all the time. And clearly, like, the creators of the cartoon love Magneto because he is the only character that is called out by name in the theme song. They, like, clearly set him up as the big bad and one of the most important characters in the show. Oh, yeah, shit, the theme song. We haven't talked about that. Oh, my God. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And actually, the bit of glorious music you heard in the place of our usual 90s X-Men theme 
was that. I thought I knew all the words, but when we were watching it again, I'm like, no, I actually made all this up to go with the same tune. I'm getting half the words wrong, (laughs) but it's great. And like most of the music in the show as action scenes are happening are like different versions of the opening theme. Mm -hmm. And I just want that everywhere. What I want to do is I want to just redo either uh, X-Men First Class or Days of Future Past, the live action movies, and just replace the soundtrack with that. I agree. And the sound effects, too. We need all of that. Yes, ideally. (laughs) Then you got to do X-Men, too, so you can get Nightcrawler's awesome, not at all a Banff sound effect. Yes. Yeah. That actually made me think. You were talking about how much this feels like a Saturday morning cartoon and specifically how much it feels like G.I. Joe. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the ways in which it does for me, that it's very clear that had this gone to series, Magneto was going to be basically Cobra Commander. Yeah. brotherhood of mutant terrorists yes that's what they're called more on that later would have been you know cobra they would have been back probably almost every episode to menace the x-men in some new slightly different way it would give them a lot of evil villains to fight but with the kind of a like an overall cohesion to it one big bad an infinite you know number of lesser villains exactly But yeah, so Magneto does introduce his team as the Brotherhood of Mutant Terrorists as he's being broken out. Why would you call your team that? Exactly. It's like Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Like, that's so racist, man. It hurts my feelings for you to call me evil. Like, we're terrorists, okay? Like, terrorists aren't all bad. And actually, we looked it up when we were writing this morning, (laughs) and apparently 1989 was the worst year for American terrorism ever. So terrorism would have been, like, really in the public consciousness, which kind of brings up, why would you call yourself that in that social climate? Exactly. I mean, I guess he's trying to make a stand and make a statement, but he really needs to learn more about PR. Okay, so Magneto's breaking out. So how does he break out? Well, he breaks out because of, I mean, it's it's the White Queen, sort of. <laughs> it is uh, the White Queen, Emma Frost, in her customary, you know, outfit with an old lady voice, which is very strange. So she's in her little sexy outfit and, you know, she doesn't care. She just wants to uh, destroy the world, you know, wearing uh, no pants and throwing her, like, psychic javelin at people. You gotta have a shtick. And yeah, she does have psychic javelins, which blow things up. She can also fly. Okay. But I actually really like the way she breaks Magneto out. She, like, causes this hallucination for all the soldiers where it seems like all the, their convoy is sinking into the pavement like it's quicksand. Yep. yep, It's actually a pretty cool visual effect. And really, the visual effects in the show, especially for 89, are pretty good. Yeah, I thought the animation was solid you know the the characters the designs were good so this could have been a solid series i think so yeah i mean it would have felt very saturday morning cartoon very formulaic but that's not always a bad thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but what i also love is you know magneto who spoiler alert later on his plans include you know destroying the universe and yet when he breaks free what does he do to the evil general they're basically like at the canal in greece somehow and he just like you're evil i'm gonna put you in the water goodbye yeah You know, I mean, there's destroying the world, but when it comes to an individual person, you want to afford them the respect that wrapping them in their disassembled gun and throwing them into a ditch would grant. Next time, swirly. That's right. (laughs) I'm a wet willy or like... (laughs) Yeah, Charlie horse. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so Magneto has broken free and obviously that's no good. Meanwhile, what's happening at the X Mansion? So a mysterious taxi draws up and we see one Kitty Pride pulling up very nervously asking the taxi driver to wait. And of course, he's like, heck no, those are crazy people. I'm out of here. So we see Kitty who looks a lot like our Kitty and it, but with strangely kind of reddish hair. 
and wearing some very sensible mom pants. But <laughs> yeah. w- one thing I really enjoyed is she has kind of a jacket on that is clearly her shadow cat blue color. Yeah, it's so, like the, the lighter blue from that outfit. She's come to the X-Mansion because she's received a mysterious letter from Charles Xavier that's basically like, I know all your secrets, come to my house, which kind of sounds like, a, you know, an intro for To Catch a Predator. But she's somehow gotten there without her parents knowing or anybody to go to the strange house. And here we are. And it doesn't take long once she goes in through the door that opens by itself for an astral projection of Charles Xavier to show up and start telling her what the deal with the X-Men is. You mentioned the To Catch a Predator thing, and Charles Xavier shows some really poor judgment, especially as like any kind of a respectable adult in charge of young people in this episode. But I gotta give props to his voice actor because he really comes off as like quite reasonable and paternal and wise and kind, even as he's like making horrible decisions. So yeah, it's like he's kind of taking what not to do to comfort, you know, a 14 year old girl who is grappling with life changing news instead of breaking it to her gently. He's like, oh, yeah, you're a mutant. And here's all these people. And uh, we're going to throw you into space. Yes. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, he as he's describing the X-Men, we see them kind of on this view screen in the background. Mm hmm. We were talking about that we really like the view screen because it looks like comic book panels, so it's a clear homage to the comics. It also kind of reminded me of the character select screen on the arcade game Mm -hmm, that's based on this. mm -hmm. And uh, Spoiler, more on the arcade game later. And so, yeah, Xavier basically has her watch all the X-Men training in the danger room. Mm -hmm. So while we're listening to Kitty, Miles and I were both struck that she sounded somehow familiar. We narrowed it down to she looks and sounds like a young Bernadette Peters, which is kind of odd to the point where I actually went on IMDb just to see if for some weird reason, like Bernadette Peters, like guest starred. It wasn't. It wasn't. wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, but it's so true. And this really has that 80s feel of a lot of the movies that she's known for. Kitty's also just personality wise so different than the Kitty Pride used to. The Kitty Pride we're used to, you know, is I'm not going to say confident exactly, especially when she first appears, but she's sort of very brash and very straightforward and in your face and a little bit rebellious. And this kitty is just so hesitant and timid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's whiny. She's not sure what's going on. I blame Professor X. Yeah, seriously. Just, you know, tearing down her confidence. But yeah, so he shows her all the X-Men training in the danger room. And so we get brief introductions to each of them using their powers to fight like Inca robots or dodge traps in a tomb and stuff like that. And I think this is the first place, aside from the opening credits, where the animation really shines through. The action scenes are kick-ass in this for an 80s cartoon. Yeah, absolutely. They use the danger room to, you know, its best advantage. But also what's really interesting is the character designs in this. They're all kind of like the best versions of the characters at the time. Like Cyclops is very on model, you know, 80s Cyclops. Colossus is amazing. Dazzler, that is exactly the Dazzler that was in the comics in 1989. And yeah, that's the weird part, because like the rest of the X-Men seem like they're sort of Dark Phoenix Saga era Mm X-Men. They're perfect renditions of those costumes. But Dazzler is the version of Dazzler from way later. And I was thinking maybe that's because the outfit Dazzler was wearing around the Dark Phoenix Saga, that super disco spangly outfit. I mean, I think that scene is kind of kitschy and charming now. But back then, like I think you were saying when we were talking about this, that would have been seen as crazy dated. Yeah, it would have been so passe. It would have been, you know, just totally ludicrous. But yeah, they have Storm in her classic, you know, 1980 bathing suit type thing. No mohawk for Storm here. Yeah, I think they took the best, most accessible version of the characters and put them up on the screen. Yeah, so like Wolverine's got his yellow and brown, even though back in the 80s he would have had the yellow and black. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And oh, speaking of, I guess we should just do a rundown on the characters. So yeah, there's Cyclops, there's Storm, there's Wolverine, there's Colossus, there's Nightcrawler, and there's Dazzler. I'm assuming Dazzler was inserted mainly just to make there be another female character on the X-Men, which I'm totally okay with that. I mean, there was Phoenix at the time, but that would have been complicated. 
Sure, sure. Well, and she's got a power that's good for a cartoon, I would think, you know, with her light shows and the lasers and things like that. Absolutely, yeah. And the whole sound to light thing, it was always a cool concept. That, that at least gets mentioned, even if it never really becomes a plot point at mm-hmm. all in the episode. <laughs> and so, yeah, Kitty's obviously very impressed. And she asks what Xavier's power is. He says it's telepathy, it's mind reading. And as she's concerned, I, uh, I, I love his response here. Oh, don't worry, child. I don't use my gift recklessly. Uh-huh. Obviously, uh, nobody had read X-Men Deadly Genesis at this point <laughs> or any number of other things. I just use it to learn secrets about teenagers and lure them to my house. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's for good purposes. I'm just going to send him into space later. It'll be fine. <laughs> Isn't that what all teenagers want? Yeah, hello. I mean, to be fair, I really would have loved to go into space with the uh, X-Men. Yeah, of course. <laughs> as long as the brood stayed far away. And so, yeah, the X-Men all come back from their training. Kitty actually gets a little freaked out by uh, Nightcrawler which that's comics accurate you know when she first met nightcrawler Mm -hmm. since he was so strange looking he weirded her out a lot and accidentally phases through the danger room console causing it to very briefly go berserk and Mm -hmm. storm to have to save her yeah that was a good way of introducing another side effect of her powers it's not just walking through things it's an asset and a, a danger that she can actually short out computers and also here talking about her getting freaked out by kurt What I love about this version of Kurt is he's very much the confident, swashbuckling, you know, ladies' man Kurt. Like, I love that incarnation of him, but he's a little bit much for Kitty, you know, who'd just seen an astral projection. Right. Well, also, I mean, it's like, dude, please read her body language. She doesn't want you to kiss her hands. <laughs> exactly. I kind of feel like the real Kurt Wagner would be, I, I say the real Kurt Wagner here, uh, would be a little more respectful of such things. But he is super charming, and the guy that does his voice is awesome. I wish I knew more about voice actors, because I'm sure all of these voice actors have, like, long and storied histories in animation, but I, I don't know who they are. But that guy's great. Yeah, the great thing, except for, you know, Wolverine having a kind of a jarring Australian accent, is the voice actors have such great accents, you know, Colossus is Russian, you know, and Storm has an accent that sounds like it could be from Kenya. You know, it was a pleasant surprise. Totally, yeah. And oh, speaking of Colossus, Colossus's lines are some of my favorite in this whole show. And on the one hand, they're like almost offensively stereotypically Russian immigrant. But I just love the delivery. Like after Storm has to use her powers to save Kitty, you know, they all get rained on and Kitty apologizes and Colossus is like, ha ha, is good, little one. Colossus like rain. Yeah, it is hilarious. And I love pretty much all of Colossus's lines and his interactions with the characters, but it's particularly him and Nightcrawler have some great moments. Yeah, the dynamics, like, they're captured surprisingly well. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is no X-Men, the animated series from the 90s. I think that was a lot better in a lot of ways. But I was pleasantly surprised watching Mm -hmm, this again. mm -hmm. I'm actually kind of sad that it wasn't a series now. I'm like, hmm, maybe we should write our own fan fiction for this. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And yeah, so you mentioned the Wolverine Australian thing. Obviously, that came up in the cold open. It's not just like a slightly Australian accent. I mean, it is an intensely in-your-face kangaroos and koalas Australian accent. It is a lot. All he drinks is Fosters. Exactly. (laughs) And so, yeah, his personality is he's Australian. He's angry all the time and he hates kids so much. Yeah, he has a very uh, visceral reaction to Kitty joining the team, which some people might think is, you know, a common sense reaction to having a teenager join a band of super heroes but it's a plot point throughout the entire thing that he really doesn't think kitty should be there oh right weren't you saying that that kind of reminded you of um of schism yeah we were joking that the, you know his whole problem with having children be warriors you know this is really them secretly planting the seeds for schism like 30 years early now if only the version of cyclops and pride of the x-men had any personality whatsoever yeah he's just kind of there like obviously the problem with any x-men book or show is that you're dealing with a large cast of characters so not everyone can shine but like he's pretty much a non-entity here yeah i think him
him and Dazzler probably suffer the most from that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're just the boring straight men. So there's a big alarm because it turns out there are mutants attacking and stuff. And uh, the X-Men all run off and Kitty does too. Like she's immediately bought in. Like, well, I guess I'm on the X-Men now, five yep. minutes after meeting them. Yeah. Wait for me, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of great. And what's going on, in fact, is that there are evil mutants attacking the Deep Space Observatory. Of course. Cyclops worries that it's a trap to get Xavier alone. You know, spoiler, he's right. But Xavier says, hey, you know, we've got all these computerized defenses. What could possibly go wrong? Why don't you leave me and Kitty here? So, yeah, no sooner are the X-Men gone than, in fact, Magneto and Juggernaut attack the mansion. I love all the little guns coming out of the lawn, and there's little guns with these little patches of lawn on top of them fighting against them. But unfortunately, Kitty gets excited. She backs into a computer and it disables the defenses, which allows them to enter the mansion. Womp womp. And uh, so, yeah, you know, they confront Xavier. And I do want to jump in and say here, like, okay, so Juggernaut on the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, sorry, the Brotherhood of Mutant Terrorists. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's not exactly canon, nor is it with the White Queen. But, you know, you could do worse than sort of a greatest hits lineup of X-Men villains at the time. Xavier immediately brings up the fact that Juggernaut is actually his stepbrother, which is very interesting. But I also love when he gets in there, you know, Xavier's dealing with him with this very world-weary voice. He's like, oh, yes, you're welcome anytime, but, you know, I really don't appreciate your choice of friends. It's like his deadbeat stepbrother yeah. is dropping by, is trying to steal his TV and try to borrow some money. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh, and man, Juggernaut's voice actor is just great. He's got this weird, weird delivery. No warm welcome for your dear stepbrother. <laughs> Like, that's not how words work, Kane. Like, uh, what's happening here? Step into a Slim Jim, Chuck. <laughs> oh, Jesus, it's just like that. <laughs> and yeah, Magneto, of course, is trying to sway Kitty to his side, kind of in much the same way that Emma Frost was in her first appearance, except Magneto is talking about how, you know, humans will never accept mutants, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Kitty won't have any of it, because obviously this man in red tights with a cape with evil angry eyes is not a good guy. And so she starts to run, but not before Professor Xavier gives her what Magneto has been after, the mutant power circuit. A.K.A. this episode's MacGuffin. It is so MacGuffin. So yeah, it's this thing that runs Cerebro. Professor Xavier mentioned that before, and it's just sort of like this energy sphere with some machinery stuff on the outside. It looks like this sort of enamelized objet art or whatever. It's like a planet or a globe that he just immediately gives to her and is like, okay, run. Man, Kitty's having a rough first day on the X-Men here. <laughs> and so she does run, but Magneto chases her and pulls some weird little wires out of the wall and zaps her, and she freaks out and faces away, and he gets the mutant power circuit. What is the mutant power circuit? What does it do? Why does Cerebro need it? Why does Magneto want it? Uh, you know. Reasons. Reasons, exactly. That's attack number one. Now, attack number two, we mentioned the deep space observatory that the X-Men went after. Turns out that is Blob and Pyro menacing some, you know, normal humans by being evil a lot. Yeah, there's a family there. It's a mom and a dad and a little girl with a doll, and they're trapped in a cage of fire. Yeah, it's actually pretty great. I, I love all the visual effects in this show. <laughs> and so the X-Men, you know, confront them, and they're like, hey, what do you want? And Blob replies, nothing, just take over Earth. He really reminds me of nothing so much as Tor Johnson, the uh, wrestler who used to work with Ed Wood in all of his movies. Yes. Like, the delivery is exactly the same. I actually thought he had an accent at first, but then I realized it was just, you know, kind of an abbreviated speech. Pyro, though, is actually really endearing. So, like we said before, he actually is Australian, so it makes sense for him to have an Australian accent. 
but he's all like flipping around and making fire puns and having like little fire demony things come out of his uh blasters he's kind of like the evil australian nightcrawler of the team he kind of is he's surprisingly mm-hmm. acrobatic mm-hmm. um but he's fun I-, I love him every time he's on screen so then logan confronts pyro with his australian accent as well once i get my claws on him he'll be talking off the other side so Jay and I normally don't do accents, but I feel like it's justified in this instance to do a terrible Australian accent. Absolutely. So they beat them back. They free the family. Kurt brings the the little girl has dropped her doll. So it's a very Frankenstein moment. You know, he's trying to help the little girl. And of course, the dad is immediately like, mutant scum, get away from my family. You know, I kind of understand that since they were just terrorized by mutants. They don't know what's going on. But still, it's really bringing home the point that mutants are hated and feared in this cartoon. Yeah, I mean, I know some criticism of this episode has been that it just pays the briefest of lip service to the whole mutant metaphor thing, you know, the the anti-mutant bigotry. But I think it comes up, you know, regularly enough that if it had continued in a series, the seeds would have been planted. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's going on. We have our two attacks. Now, uh, Magneto has gotten what he wanted, the mutant power circuit, having drawn the X-Men away from the mansion to get it. So he heads back to Asteroid M. This is the first episode. The pilot, we're already seeing Asteroid M. I feel totally great about that. And another thing I really liked about this cartoon, we were talking about how the beginning of it really reminded me of G.I. Joe. All the space stuff totally reminds me of the Transformers movie. Like, even the music totally brings back memories. Yeah, I think you're, you're completely right. And so, you know, he's being an evil villain dude and doing some evil villain speeches. And this is where we first meet another member of the Brotherhood of Mutant Terrorists, that being Toad. Toad with his incredible Peter Lorre voice, like, I did it, Master! I did good, didn't I? I can't do a Peter Lorre voice, but you know, if you've seen a Peter Lorre movie, you know what I'm talking about. That was good. I thought that was very good. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Magneto's a total jerk to him. Yes, Toad! Now go make yourself useful and play in the airlock! So there's another member of the team, or at least he's there. Another intro is Lockheed, the dragon, who, of course, is Kitty's pet, or perhaps Kitty is his pet. I don't know if that's ever really resolved. But uh, Lockheed is there. We don't know why, but he's basically everybody's punching bag. It's like to make them not only terrorists and not only evil, Magneto goes out of his way to like punch or kick Lockheed at every appearance. It's really bizarre and it's kind of like uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Like the Magneto we were seeing in 1989 in the comics, you know, the sort of troubled, nuanced Holocaust survivor who goes back and forth in the line between good and evil. No, no, no. This guy is just awful. He's just evil, 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 evil. Yeah, I mean, it's Lockheed. He's an animal. He's not an evil human that's trying to, you know, be down on the mutants. What's the point? Come on, dude. Be kind to little purple dragons who (laughs) happen to be in your space base. Okay, so the X-Men, meanwhile, they are heading back to the mansion because they're realizing, crap, that thing about this being a trap, maybe? Yeah, it was totally a trap. And the place is just smashed all to hell. And they just see Xavier under some rubble. Looks very painful and possibly fatal. But he's okay. And, of course, Cyclops uses his optic blast to wipe off a table to put him down, and Xavier clearly moves his leg. So maybe this was some sort of a miracle accident. Maybe that was going to be followed up in episode two. Maybe. We'll never know. Or it could be just an animation error. We'll let you be the judge, listeners. And so the X-Men are trying to figure out what to do. Wolverine continues his trend of being a total dick when Kitty offers to help. The X-Men don't have room for whiny brats! Yeah, even Dazzler's like, well, yes, Wolverine is a jerk, but he's not your enemy. Which actually brings me, this is such a minor thing, but I wrote this in the outline because we had to bring it up. So when Dazzler says that Wolverine's not Kitty's enemy, Nightcrawler agrees, saying, that's right. 
which it's fun delivery, but for some reason, my friends and I, who used to watch this episode all the time when we were kids, like we just fixated on this line. And so that was the only way any of us ever said that's right for a period of like five years. That's right. Well, once Kitty gets her bearing, she is super relieved that Xavier is okay. She immediately runs to him and hugs him. She's clearly insta-bonded with Xavier. I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense that he's her new dad because her real dad, Carmen Pride, canonically is kind of a fucked up dude. Absolutely. He is a failure as a dad at pretty much every possible opportunity. Plus, it appears that he does not know that his daughter is in Westchester. Yeah, I think Kitty's parents, maybe they're just looking around. Maybe they're driving around the neighborhood and they've already called the cops and they're like, we just saw our daughter. We don't know where she is. (laughs) (laughs) We'll never know. So yes, the X-Men resolve to go and uh, fix things and, you know, try to figure out where Magneto is. And of course, where Magneto is, Asteroid M, he is telling the viewers about his own evil plot. It's so evil, you guys. Basically, his evil plot is to capture an asteroid and then use the MacGuffin to take the other MacGuffin and slam it into the Earth, which of course would blot out the sun and kill most of the people on Earth. Yeah, now he talks about this like it would just get rid of the humans and the mutants would be okay. Are mutants somehow blot out the sun proof? Exactly. He really didn't seem to have any sort of plan for this. They're on Asteroid M. Like, do they have enough food, like, stockpiled to wait out 20 years until the sun comes out again? Like, I, what's their plan? I, I mean, I guess they could eat Lockheed, but that wouldn't last them very long. <laughs> uh, clearly, they're jerks enough to do so. Yeah, so he's going to use the mutant power circuit. Again, not a circuit, actually sort of a sphere to capture the Scorpio comet and guide it into Earth. And that's no good. And Xavier actually finds out by sort of telepathically attempting to reach out to Magneto, at which point he gets hit by the power in a delivery that could be straight out of the X-Men 90 series and falls over. But at least the X-Men know what to do now, right? Exactly. Go to space where Kitty will totally not stow away. Spoiler. Kitty stows away. Like, it. it doesn't take very long for uh, us to see the Blackbird, which is also a spaceship in this, and for Xavier to find Kitty in a locker already suited up in the pastel blue and gold X-Men space uniform. Yes, with the X right across the chest. Well, you know, it's, it's all about branding. I, I run a podcast. I understand how this works. And you were in marketing, <laughs> so of course you do. Exactly. So Xavier discovers her. He's not perturbed. He apparently has really no problem with her stowing away into space without any training or, you know, knowing she's a mutant for about 15 minutes. She's going to go beat Magneto. Yeah, although that reminds me, um, before this happens, when the X-Men are like, hey, you have to stay here, one of my favorite Kitty Pride lines, no, I'm going to go say my favorite Kitty Pride line in the entire episode. Stop calling me a kid. I am 14 years old. Which is exactly Kitty Pride out of the comic. Like, it's a weird rendition of Kitty in this show, but that right there, perfect. Yeah, and then she follows it up with, I'll show you, I'll show you all. Which actually sounds kind of intimidating. Yeah, that sounds kind of threatening. Yeah. So the X-Men get to Asteroid M, and it's this weird thing where, like, you know, they're confronted by each member of the Brotherhood of Mutant Terrorists in turn, and, like, each X-Men has to, you know, fight them one-on-one and stay behind. Dazzler fights Pyro and holds him off. I kind of love the Wolverine part because he buries Toad in a bunch of rubble that he knocks down with his claws, because, of course, it's a Saturday morning cartoon. You can't show actual violence. And then he just sort of stays there, even though Toad's totally incapacitated, and the rest of the X-Men continue. He's like, I'll just wait here and see what happens. I mean, you know, Toad might get out, and if he does, I want to be here with my claws (laughs) so I can not cut 
fought him again. Exactly. My favorite part, though, is Juggernaut and Colossus. This part is just so weird and great. They're confronting each other, and the Juggernaut rips this kind of big ventilation shaft tube thing off the wall, and Colossus grabs the other edge, and they just sort of crunch it toward each other. Yeah. I don't know how that's a fight exactly, but at the very end, it really is sort of a now-kiss moment as they get right up against each other. As they wrestle with this uh, large tubular object between the two of them. I think what it is, is it's a metaphor. It was the late 80s, so there was the AIDS care going on. So, you know, the country's attitude toward homosexuality was kind of regressive. And so really, the big metal object is just a metaphor for the latent homophobia of Western culture in the late 1980s, and they're crushing it between themselves to bring themselves closer together. Absolutely. Why not add, you know, fighting homophobia to fighting for mutant rights? I'm pretty sure that this was absolutely 100% intended. It is the correct interpretation. (laughs) I think you're right. I think so. But yeah, so, you know, and Cyclops fights the White Queen, etc., etc. But eventually it's just Nightcrawler, and he meets up with the Blob, who does his famous, Nothing moves the Blob! And I love Kurt's response here. And I wouldn't dream of trying. Off Wiederson. And he just, like, teleports past him, leading to the best Blob line in the entire show, which is simply... Where go? <laughs> yep, yep. That Tor Johnson thing? Totally. And that was totally Nightcrawler. He's not going to waste his time trying to fight the Blob when he can outsmart him. You know, it didn't take a lot of smarts to outsmart the Blob, <laughs> but still was an elegant solution to his problem. Yeah. And so that just leaves Nightcrawler against the boss, which is to say Magneto. Magneto says, Fascinating, isn't it? Earth shall be destroyed in precisely three minutes. He's such like just a stand-up supervillain in this. Like, he's the perfect Saturday morning cartoon villain, and I love that. And, you know, he's got an accurate sense of timing. Right. I really wish they'd had, like, a little timer in the top right of the screen or something. I think that would have added to a it. A countdown. Like, 24. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, if they ever uh, remake Pride of the X-Men, which, go for it, Marvel, do it. Then they should add that in, if anyone's listening, who yep. would be in charge of that. So, yes, Kurt confronts Magneto, and Kitty jumps in to help save him, which basically involves phasing through some circuits to distract Magneto, and then knocking him the hell over, and breaking the machine that the mutant power circuit's in. Yes, and also Lockheed helps by biting Magneto, therefore, you know, getting a little bit of revenge for all the kicking and hitting. That's right, so just let this be a lesson to all of you. Don't abuse animals, because they will bite your leg and mess up your plan to destroy the Earth and kill almost everyone on it. So Kurt has to leap into action to, you know, reconnect the circuit using his own body, you know, to redirect it, and they are redirecting the comet toward asteroid M now. Right, because otherwise, you know, with the machine messed up, the comet could not have been steered away from the Earth, and everyone still would have died. Mm-hmm. And so Kitty says, And now Scorpio will destroy this base instead. Yup, but Magneto points out, Although you've won, Nightcrawler must die, which is totally like something from a Silver Age comic cover. Absolutely, yes. Of course, Nightcrawler has to stay there to complete the circuit. Otherwise, the comet will redirect back toward Earth again. The science here is um, a little confusing, but I'm just going to assume that the people who made Pride of the X-Men did all of the research, and this is exactly how science works in every way. I think they probably tested it out themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in simulation at the very least, but it's like testing nuclear missiles like North Korea supposedly just did. They just did that with the Scorpio comet and the sure. power circuit. And a stopwatch. And a stopwatch. Yes. <laughs> Three-minute timer. Yes. And so Kitty feels super shitty because she's like, all of this is my fault, and now this blue dude, who's actually pretty awesome and brave, even though I thought he was scary because he was blue, is going to die. Crap! And so she doesn't know what to do until Professor Xavier telepathically reassures her, it's all going to be fine, totally have a plan, just come back to the Blackbird. So she picks up Lockheed and returns to the ship. And I actually like the way this happens. Like, Xavier's plan is kind of cool because what he does is he reassures Nightcrawler telepathically that he's going to keep an image of the Blackbird on one of the view screens inside. 
so that Nightcrawler can teleport back to it at the last minute, which is how Nightcrawler's powers work. It's actually a rare example of subtlety and show don't tell in this show. Yeah, in the beginning, when they introduce Kurt, they mention that his specialty is line of sight teleportation, which they don't really go into in depth and they don't really explain it here, but they clearly set it up and then demonstrate it. Kurt does indeed teleport at the last minute, but it looks like he was too late and he died because they can't find him. Oh no. Except no, then it turns out he's out there in space and he's fine. Yay. But he's burning up in re-entry. Oh no. But they're going to save him with the grappling beams. Yay. But they're too late. Oh no. Like it's really much a God, my heart rate. Stop it, dudes. Exactly. Kitty says, no, I was so mean to him. Now I can never make it up to him. But it turns out he actually is okay. He's in one of the ship's lockers, like the kind that Kitty hid in before, I guess. I guess those lockers are just used for storing people, as near as I can tell. Just like junior high. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And so Colossus rips the door off the locker and hugs Kurt, who then, after hugging his bro, goes to thank Kitty. He thanks Kitty for saving him, which is cute, but both Miles and I were like, wait, what? Right, because, I mean, Kitty didn't really save him. She just kind of knocked Magneto over and made Nightcrawler have to go into a big electrical circuit thing. Exactly, because she knocked Magneto over, he actually broke the circuit, which put Nightcrawler in danger, but eh, we'll give it to him. They had a nice reconciliation, a nice moment. They can move forward now. One of the X-Men mentions that now she's really an X-Man, and Wolverine, of course, has to get in the last line. So the kid got lucky. That don't make her an X-Man. Yet. Which is like the perfect last line in the Saturday morning cartoon pilot you could possibly hope for. Yep, absolutely. They're totally paving the way for, you know, the future episodes, Wolverine softening and, you know, becoming Kitty's mentor. Alas, we will never see where that happened, because as much as Stanley promises at the very end as we watch the X-Men in front of an image of the Earth, and he talks about how they'll always be there to stop Magneto, no, it was not to occur. So we just have Pride of the X-Men as a unique and kind of great and kind of terrible, but mostly kind of great historical artifact. Yeah, in retrospect, I am very sad. You know, when this came out, it was 1989, and it was right after I had discovered the X-Men and become obsessed with them, you know, in real life. So I remember being very excited that there was a pilot and thinking that there was going to be a cartoon series of this great new, you know, comic I had discovered. And alas, it was never to be. Yeah. With me, I just watched this on the VHS copy I had taped off television like a million times. I didn't have that foresight to do that. So, okay, that's Pride of the X-Men. But there were, in fact, some spinoffs because everybody thought this was actually going to go somewhere. And we are now here to talk about the X-Men arcade game. Which we played at Ground Control, a fantastic retro video arcade here in Portland. Yeah, it's a great place. If you're uh, near Portland, you should totally go there. So, okay, now this wasn't the first video game based off Pride of the X-Men. There were actually three, which is surprising. So there was one for uh, DOS called X-Men Madness and Murder World. It was a side-scroller. I never played it. Supposedly, it's okay. There was also one for the NES simply called The Uncanny X-Men. Which I think was a spinoff because it had the same cast, except instead of having Dazzler, it had Iceman for some reason. But it was a sort of top-down action game, and you guys, it was one of the worst games I've played in my life. It's almost impossible, the enemies are way too fast, it doesn't feel at all like X-Men. Wolverine kicks people, even though he's the guy with the claws, it's just, (laughs) there's nothing good about this game at all, and I was so disappointed when I played it when I was a kid. That's funny. I've never played any of those, except for the one that we played this week. Yeah, so the X-Men arcade game is actually kind of great. 
one of the things that makes it unique is that it was available in a few different configurations for a different number of players each. And that's not unusual, but what's unusual is that the sort of top-of-the-line version actually has spots for six players, one for each of the six characters. You play Cyclops, Wolverine, Colossus, Storm, Nightcrawler, or Dazzler, and it's got two screens side-by-side, uh, side. so it actually feels really immersive, and even so many years after it came out, it's kind of impressive. So the cabinet of this is decorated with actual comic book art, so you'll see you know, a picture of Storm that's clearly a Mark Silvestri piece, and she's in her jumpsuit. She's not in the costume that she's in in the video game, but they did kind of superimpose her headpiece on it for continuity. There's other pieces from like Cockrum or John Byrne, so it, it's it's pretty cool to look at. It is, yeah. Um, I think we recognized almost all the art except some of the Dazzler stuff seemed like it might have been kind of custom drawn for the cabinet. Yeah, that was the only one that didn't ping me. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about the game itself. The game is great, and I have to say I'm terrible at video games, and this one is very easy to play. You need a lot of quarters to continue <laughs> yes, to play too. because you die a lot, but it's very simple and it's a lot of fun, especially if you're at a place like Ground Control where you can drink while you play. Yeah, they have like cup holders on the arcade cabinets themselves. It's pretty awesome. X-Men the Arcade Game is very much a classic quarter muncher. It's not so much, how do you say, fair. So there's a game like, you know, Final Fight, where skill really does factor in. You can get really far on just one quarter if you're good. With X-Men, the various enemies are just going to kick your ass, especially the bosses. And so we had like just this stack of quarters just piled on top of the cabinet the whole time. So like mostly it's punching and kicking enemies and stuff. You can also use your mutant powers. We'll get to what those do in a second. But those take off some of your life every time you use them. But you also kind of need to use them against the bosses because getting close is suicide. So really this game is very talented at taking all of your quarters away or possibly all of your parents' quarters away if you're me and it was the early 90s. Yeah, it is a lot of fun, and it's just kind of like a melee where you're just kicking and punching and using your mutant powers and blasting apart robots and perhaps people. But uh, it's a lot of fun. Kitty is being held captive. You know, the object of the game is to beat all the villains, rescue Kitty, and then blow up Asteroid M. Basically, yeah. So yeah, it's got the same cast as Pride of the X-Men. And I love the way the mutant powers work. Like, some of them are kind of similar. So Cyclops has his optic blasts, which explode on impact, but whatever. Storm has whirlwinds, which, okay, although she also, for some reason, in close quarters combat, has this kind of baton stick thing that she uses. Which is weird. It kind of echoes Emma Frost having, like, a psychic javelin in the cartoon. They just decide the ladies need, like, sticks. Need some kind of weapons, yeah. But then some of them are really weird. So, like, Wolverine can kind of shoot laser blasts out of his claws. Yeah. You know, okay. I like to think it's like the sum totality of his berserker rage. Right, he's, he's just uh, shooting his rage forward in a, in a beam of pure angry might. Exactly. But Colossus has probably the best one, where he kind of does this victory warrior pose and yells and has this energy flash out from around him as he briefly turns human. I don't know why that works, but I do know that his... It will be in my head for the rest of my life. That is a fun one. Nightcrawler zaps all around the screen. We thought perhaps he's punching everybody very quickly. And then Dazzler throws her energy bombs. You know, energy bomb, energy blast, lasers, whatever. Yeah, close yeah. enough. Now, the enemies are kind of weird. Like, some of them are classic X-Men enemies, but they're all kind of crammed together in the same way that the Brotherhood of Mutant Terrorists and Pride of the X-Men is just kind of a greatest hits version. So Magneto's commanding an army of Sentinels for some reason, not typically his style. But the ones he mostly sends after you are like person-sized sentinels. Hundreds and hundreds of differently colored person-sized sentinels. It's like the Green Lantern Corps, you know? It's like they have the rainbow lanterns. They have rainbow sentinels. Oh, like so each sentinel represents a different kind of emotion? Maybe, yes, yes. This one's about mutant hate. This one is about more mutant hate. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and these are the sentinels of hope and love. 
<laughs> and we just blew them up. Those are the pink ones. Yeah. But then there are also like Hellfire Club guard guys, like the ones in the armor that were sort of in Mandroid armor from Emma Frost and Kitty's first appearance. Then it gets weird because like there are these lizard dudes that you fight in the Savage Land area. Technically, it's Island M, but it looks like the Savage Land. And for the life of me, I could not figure out who they were supposed to be. Like we looked around online. I was just racking my brain of all the old Marvel stories. They look so familiar and I have no idea what their deal is. But there are like a hundred of them and you kill them all. Yeah. If anybody out there has any idea of what they are, please tell us. Yeah. And then you fight Reavers, which is to say you fight a hundred bone breakers. You know, like the guy who's got the tank treads, the tank tour, the sent tank. He's just everywhere. At one point, a, a giant sentinel opens its mouth and a bunch of him come out of it, which really raises a lot of questions. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And then they fight some things that look like mini Krakoas, which were also pretty cool or as little swamp things. It's unclear what they're supposed to be. I, I'm going to vote for the Krakoa and then assorted robot bugs and birds and bats and that sort of thing, you know, because video game. Now, the bosses are the more recognizable characters. You have the Brotherhood of Mutant Terrorists from the show Pyro Blob, the White Queen and Juggernaut. Juggernaut has a bazooka. I, I don't know why it doesn't seem like he really needs one, but I guess that's more dangerous than him without a bazooka, so okay. Now, we also have a few that were not in the cartoon, so we have Wendigo, we have the Master Mold Nimrod hybrid that was around in the late 80s. Mystique shows up the first time you fight Magneto. When he doesn't use his powers, it turns out he's really a Mystique. And the Living Monolith, or rather three of the Living Monolith, that are also robots. That part's really confusing. I don't know why it happens, but you know, whatever. So you travel from Island M to Asteroid M while rescuing Kitty Pride and the Professor. And in the end, you blow up Asteroid M. So we guess all the bad guys just die. You know, it's very, very standard arcade game in that you kill everyone and there's no real examination of it. But with a property like X-Men, where the whole do we kill people, do we not kill people has always been such a central question. That was kind of weird in retrospect, because you're like doing Nathan Drake levels of, of mass murder in this. It's true. I like to think that maybe there was an escape pod that they all just got into and, you know, flew away. But who knows? <laughs> who knows? Okay, so that's the X-Men arcade game, uh, my personal favorite spinoff of Pride of the X-Men. So we hope this has been, you know, educational and informative. And like I said, YouTube, check it out, the X-Men arcade game. You can also, I'm sure, emulate it or whatever. It's a lot of fun. It's worth playing. Meanwhile, you have questions. Stevonicus asks, do you think Pride of the X-Men did a better job at setting up its premise and introducing its characters than the 90s series or Evolution? It brings in a lot of characters, both good and bad, very quickly. It does do that pretty well, but I would say actually that the 90s series works better than Pride of the X-Men. By having our point of view character, uh, Jubilee in this case, jump into the whole thing sort of in medias res as this big sentinel attack is going on, we get a good chance to see each X-Men's powers in action, kind of like in Pride of the X-Men, but we also get a chance to see each of their personalities in a more real-world context. So we, you know, learn about Gambit being a charmer and Cyclops being a hard-ass and Wolverine being your angry, crazy murder uncle. In a way that I think does work better. The 90s animated series really gained a lot from Pride of the X-Men, like mm -hmm. noticing what worked and what didn't. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, that actually makes me like the 90s animated series a lot more. Now, as far as X-Men Evolution, it's really harder to compare Pride of the X-Men to that. Because in X-Men Evolution, the show starts out with, you know, the premise only starting to be assembled. There are only a few people that are working with Xavier, and the team isn't built up, you know, for many, many episodes. So it doesn't really have as much heavy lifting as either the 90s series or Pride of the X-Men does uh, right out of the gate. Yeah, I think the later cartoons really handle the character introductions more organically than they did with this one. With this one, it's very like, here's this person, here's this person, here's this person. And, you know, they don't really get a chance to get in depth or demonstrate who they are. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Okay, what else? The Cat Who Walks Through Walls asks, 
two-part question. Is there a part of X-Men lore that you think would easily translate to a live-action show in the vein of Arrow? And what part of X-Men lore would be the most hilarious to translate to a live television show? So I think the original time that the X-Men were in San Francisco would be a great time. It's uh, when they were dealing with the Beyonder. I think pretty much anything drawn by John Romita Jr. I think would be good at a television show because he's got a real kind of down-to-earth, kind of human-sized style. But I I like the idea of the X-Men bumming around in San Francisco and fighting villains. My idea is actually kind of similar. I was going to say I'd love to see a show of them immediately after the Mutant Massacre. When they're on the run, they're kind of beaten down, but they're also preparing to strike back and like wrestling with where the line is between ethics and survival. And I don't think you need to introduce much of the backstory at first. You can just sort of introduce it gradually in flashbacks or whatever or in discussions as you go. And also as a bonus, since that's really a very uh, non-cosmic down-to-earth era in terms of the battles they fight, hey, wouldn't cost much budget. There you go. I think another good choice would be the Australian years because it's like they've got a home base that it's another kind of low key time in their lives, but they can teleport anywhere. So that's kind of easy. That's easy for storyline opportunities. Yeah. Uh, What about funniest? Funniest? It would have to be Kitty's bedtime story. I just think that's hilarious. And I would love to see little Bamfs. Oh, man, that would be a beautiful thing. I interpreted that as like uh, sort of the most inadvertently hilarious, like schadenfreude. So I would say that Curse of the Mutants would be a beautiful clusterfuck of tonal mismatch, and I would love to see someone try to do that. I was also thinking maybe the beginning of Mike Carey's X-Men Legacy run, just because good luck making a television show about that without like 40 years of backstory that you somehow have to wade through. It'd be the endless Star Wars scroll before every episode. Oh god, like the episode would be, you know, 20 minutes of scroll and then like two minutes of actual episode. (laughs) See you next time. Bring your reading glasses. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men are listener-supported, and one of the rewards you can earn as a Patreon supporter is to have your name spoken on air in a variety of character voices. So let's turn it over to Magneto. <laughs> With the mutant power circuits now in my possession, my brotherhood of mutant terrorists will reign supreme. Wait, who are you? I am the Serpentor to your Cobra Commander. I am Apocalypse! I need no mutant power circuits to crush the humans, nay, the world! For I have the strength of David Britton and the ruthlessness of Jason Cates. Fight the X-Men every episode if you must, Magneto, but know that in the inevitable feature-length film, the true villain shall be Apocalypse! Thanks again for having me on, Miles. Yeah, thanks. This was a lot of fun. It was not a hard decision when I knew Jay was going to be out of town who I should ask to be on the show. So this was fun. Last time with Alpha Flight was, this was great too. So Elizabeth, where can people find you if they want to hear more of you? I write a blog at lisbert.wordpress.com and I'm also the Portland event coordinator for Geekcraft Expo, a curated, judged, handmade, geeky craft market that is going to be at the Lloyd Center Doubletree June 11th and 12th. Awesome. So you guys should all check out both of those things. Yeah, Elizabeth, I am sure we will be seeing you on again before uh, too very long. So until then, take care. Excelsior! Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and lots of other stuff. 
Our show, like Elizabeth said, is totally listener-supported and ad-free, and is made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become one of those fine folks and help us keep doing what we do, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, Jay will be back at the studio. As the brood come back to Earth and X-Men turns into a horror movie. 